Welcome to the January IASB podcast, where we bring you the latest insights from our board meetings. I am Neely Shaw, the Executive Technical Director at the IASB, and as always, I am joined by the Chair and Vice Chair of the IASB, Andreas Barco and Linda Mazan-Hutter. Welcome and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Are we still saying Happy New Year? I think so. I was told told in some some countries you can do it until the end of January. Okay, Happy New Year. Go for the end of June. (laughs) Well, so we just finished the January 2024 board meeting where we discussed seven projects. And in this episode, we'll focus on four of those projects. Now, many of you are probably aware that we also had a joint meeting with our colleagues at the ISSB, and that is subject to a separate podcast that Linda and Sue are presenting. So be sure to tune in for that as well. So in this podcast, we'll focus only on the IASB projects, and the four that we'll cover are the post-implementation review of IFRS 15 on revenue, Uh, Secondly, the Power Purchase Agreements Project, or PPA for short, because we like our acronyms. The third is the Classification and Measurement Requirements in IFRS 9. And the fourth is our project on the IFRS for SMEs Accounting Standards. So let's start with the post-implementation review of IFRS 15. As most of our listeners probably recall, this has been effective since 2018, and it was developed as a converged standard with the FASB in the U.S. The goal of this standard is to improve accounting for revenue arising for contracts with customers. And IFRS 15, as you all know, brought in a comprehensive framework, uh, better comparability, Uh, removes interpretive guidance and provided more useful information for investors. Now, we're in the middle of a post-implementation review, as I mentioned. Andreas, can you tell us a little bit more about what a PIR is and what is the latest on this project? Yep. Um, So a PIR is the final part of the standard development process. It is an assessment whether the standard is working as the board intended. And uh, if I say it's the last uh, part of the standard development process, it goes without saying that it is not a standard setting project in itself. But it could lead to standard setting if the board was presented with evidence, new evidence, that there was a major issue it has not contemplated when it developed the standard. We normally conduct the PIRs a few years after a standard has been in effect for two or three years uh, to assess whether it meets um, the requirements. And the focus until now in this project has been on obtaining feedback from our stakeholders, standard setters, preparers, auditors, regulators, users of financial statements, you name them, uh, about how the standard has been working in practice. As part of this effort, we published a request for information, um, the common period for which ended uh, at the end of October last year. We received 74 responses to the RFI, which is actually a pretty good number. And uh, I would like to take this opportunity to thank those who submitted their comment letters or participated in outreach meetings. In the January board meeting, we started to discuss the PIR feedback, and I'm very satisfied to say that um, it has generally been very positive. Stakeholders said that IFRS 15 is doing what it is set out to do, and it's doing it well. Most respondents expressed the view that the benefits of IFRS 15 clearly outweigh the cost of implementing and applying the standard, um, we will look into further, more detailed feedback in the coming months. No decisions were made, but it is set the stage uh, for what's on the horizon. Thanks, Andreas. So you mentioned the coming months. Uh, Linda, can you tell us what's coming in the future in the future board meetings? Definitely can do that. So in the next few months, 
Uh, we'll have further discussions about the specific application matters raised by the stakeholders. And in each case, we'll have to make a decision on whether or not we want to take any action on them. The focus of the discussions will be on determining if further action, such as educational materials or potentially standard setting, is needed. This will depend on the significance and prevalence of the matter and whether the matter can be addressed by the ISB itself or potentially the Interpretations Committee in a cost-beneficial manner. Now, this, this standard is special because, as you may recall, the revenue standard RIFRS 15 is substantially converged with the revenue standard in, in U.S. GAAP. And so part of our decision-making process will include a joint meeting with the FASB in June. Uh, they also, the FASB is also right now conducting their PIR on their standard. And in, and in their PIR, both, and in both PIRs, both boards received a message from their stakeholders about the importance of retaining at least the current level of convergence. The joint meeting is simply a discussion, no decisions will be made, but it will enable both boards to update each other on feedback received and initial thinking on how to respond. And that way each board will be, able, will be conscious of whether or not by making certain decisions, they will either retain the convergence or make additional differences in the converged standards. And so we need to be aware of that. So stay tuned because decisions are expected to roll out in the third quarter. And then after that, we'll be putting together a project report and a feedback statement. Thanks, Linda and Andreas. So <clears throat> in short, lots more to come, but very importantly, we, we do recognize stakeholder feedback about the importance of maintaining the convergence gains that we've, we've already seen over the years and uh, working closely with the FASB. So look forward to that. So let's move on to our second project, Power Purchase Agreements, or as I said, PPAs. Uh, many of you might recall that we discussed this in our December podcast. So Andres, can you remind us what PPAs are? And then Linda, I'll turn it over to you to ask uh, to provide us with an update on the January meeting. I like that space, so I believe the big part of it. So a PPA is a contract uh, between an electricity generator and a customer and it could span between five and 30 years. So we are really talking long-term contracts. Lately, there has been an increase in renewable sourced PPAs, wind, solar, hydropower. Uh, in order to fund the investment for such renewable power, energy generators are seeking to fix the price for the energy produced. And there arguably is a benefit for both sides. The generator has certainty over the cash inflows needed to repay the investment, and the customer has certainty as regards the cost of energy. So PPAs offer a stable fixed price and long-term supply of renewable energy. Yet the challenge arises when energy is produced, but not immediately consumed. For instance, because a factory does not operate on a 24-7 basis, or demand for a certain suite of products has decreased and leading to a decrease in supply and thus energy consumption. Ultimately, to the sale of excess energy back to the grid. The forward purchase of goods um, would usually be accounted for as a derivative, unless the goods are needed and used for the ongoing production process, in which case they are treated as executory contracts. That is, you only see them once they are executed or become onerous. The accounting issue for us to contemplate is whether these new PPA arrangements brought to our attention qualify for the so-called on-use exemption in IFRS 9, allowing them to be accounted for as standard procurement or supply contracts. 
There's a related issue with so-called virtual PPAs that meet the definition of a derivative. So the issue for the board is about the Hedge County requirements. And as I said, it's a difficult issue, so I leave, Lin leave that for Linda to discuss that. Well, thank um, you for that, Andreas. <laughs> so in December 23, we decided to explore amending the own use exemption in IFRS 9 for physical PPAs and amending the Hedge County requirements for virtual PPAs. Over to you. Thanks, Andreas. So in our January meeting, we discussed potential amendments to IFRS 9. Now, the main challenge in talking about this is to keep any changes sufficiently ring-fenced to avoid unintended consequences, because we don't want unintended consequences to muck up accounting elsewhere, a very technical <laughs> term. So let's start with physical PPAs. We discussed application gu guidance that would be added to IFRS 9 about how the own use assessment is applied. So in a nutshell, the new application guidance would be applicable if the non-financial item meets very specific criteria. These specific, specific criteria or unique characteristics are consistent with what we often see in physical PPAs. So among other things, these PPAs would need to have characteristics such as the supply is weather or location dependent, such that the supply of power is not necessarily aligned with demand. The purchaser cannot avoid taking delivery of power when produced due to the legal structure of the market. The legal structure of the market requires excess unused power within a short period be put back into the market at the prevailing market rate. And the purpose of the contract is to ensure supply of power consistent with the company's expected need over the life of the contract. And as Andreas already mentioned, these contracts can be very long in duration. Now, we also contemplated potential new disclosure requirements in IFRS 9 for physical PPAs. Also in January, the board discussed potential amendments to hedge accounting requirements for virtual PPAs. The focus of the discussion was on what it would take from a hedge accounting perspective to better reflect the economics of virtual PPAs in the financial statements. The staff will follow up with an analysis of whether that would be feasible or appropriate in a narrow scope, scope urgent project. No decisions were made on the, in the January meeting. These discussions in January set the stage for further exploration and making decisions in February and will form the basis of an exposure draft to be published in the second quarter of 2024. Can you just come back in, in this? So we fully recognize the urgency of this issue. Um, and to get to the stage, actually, the team has conducted significant outreach and has engaged with numerous stakeholders. Uh, we are seeking to continue moving with pace while trying to find a good solution in a difficult area, but it is really difficult. Thanks, Andreas and, and Linda. I, I think that's really quite important to emphasize and, and also just um, to also emphasize that the January meeting was was not decision making. The, the staff were really intending to just explore with the board what could it do. So a little bit of um, yeah. brainstorming thinking yeah. there, but February will be the key key decision making meeting. So let's move on to our third project, the um, project on the classification and measurement requirements in IFRS 9. So this project came out of the post-implementation review of the classification and measurement requirements in, in uh, IFRS 9 and is addressing multiple issues. 
The IESB proposed amendments as part of this project um, in an exposure draft in 2023, and the meeting in January was finishing up the main technical discussions. Now, the meeting in January really kind of got down into the, the weeds of a particular issue. So let me let me set the scene a bit, and then uh, I'll turn it over to you, Andres, to talk about the the January meeting. So just stepping back, as everyone is familiar, um, IFRS 9 sets out the requirements to determine whether to classify and measure financial assets at fair value or amortized cost. And to do that, there are two criteria, the business model for managing the financial asset and the nature of the con contractual cash flows of the financial asset. Um, one area that was raised to us in the post-implementation review related to financial assets with ESG-linked features. So these are features where, um, for example, interest rates may change based off of whether a company has met a specified ESG uh, target. And this, these types of instruments are becoming more and more common. In the PIR, stakeholders told us that it's challenging to apply the SPPI criteria, or the solely payments of principal and interest criteria, um, to these assets with ESG-linked features. And they also told us that amortized costs could provide useful information about these financial assets to investors. So to address these concerns, this project and in the discussion in January is focusing on the second criterion that I mentioned, the nature of contractual cash flows. And again, the reason that's important is for the determination of whether the asset qualifies for measurement at amortized cost or fair value. And to qualify for amortized cost, contractual cash flows must consist solely of payments of principal and interest on the outstanding principal amount. So that is, they must be consistent with basic lending arrangements. So that's the backdrop going way into the weeds now. <laughs> Andreas, can you tell us a bit more about the January meeting? Yeah, sure. Um, the board re-deliberated the proposals in the exposure draft based on the feedback received and the initial discussions the board had back in October. The exposure draft proposed clarifications to the assessment of contractual cash flows of financial assets, including those with EHD features, what you just said, Neely. So specifically, the ED proposed that the SPPI assessment focuses on what an entity is being compensated for rather than how much compensation the entity received. It also proposed when contextual cash flows are inconsistent with a basic lending arrangement, and uh, it proposed uh, requirements for how contingent events affect the SPPI assessment. The board decided to finalize the proposed amendments with some changes, including clarifying the conditions in which a financial asset has contractual cash flows that are considered SPPI, even though the nature of the contingent event is not directly related to a change in the basic lending um, of its risks or costs. In other words, the board's tentative decision should assist entities in determining when ESG-linked loans can be measured at amortized cost. The, this meeting concludes this most significant board decision uh, and the discussions on this project. We expect to issue the final amendments in the second quarter of this year. Thanks, Andreas. So let's move on to the final project that we will discuss in today's podcast, and that is the IFRS for SMEs accounting standard. Linda, can I turn it over to you to provide an update on the January meeting? Uh, happy to do that, Neely. So at the January meeting, we also discussed the additional research on the proposals in the Exposure Draft 3rd edition of the IFRS for SMEs accounting standard to introduce an expected credit loss model. I think it's fair to say that there was a difficult discussion among ISP members on whether there is a subgroup of SMEs that have significant exposure to credit risks 
such that applying an ECL model would provide relevant information to users of that SME's financial statements. In the end, the ISB decided to require SMEs that provide financing to customers as one of, one of the primary businesses to apply an ECL model while retaining an incurred loss model for all other SMEs. However, the staff will undertake some additional work on the implications of the ISB's decision. The ISB will continue to re-deliberate the proposals in the exposure draft on its future meetings, and, and, and the third edition of the standard is expected to be issued in the second half of this year. Staff will also get feedback about requirement in SME's financial statements on supplier finance arrangements and lack of exchangeability in, upcoming, in an upcoming addendum ED and through other outreach before the board concludes on this topic. Well, thank you both, Andres and Linda, and that's it for our projects. <clears throat> if you'd like more uh, information, please do visit our website to get more uh, detailed discussion and um, uh, papers on all of the projects that we've discussed at the IASB meeting this month. Um, finally, uh, last month, we invited listeners to send in their questions so that we could feature them in our podcast. So be prepared. I have selected one to spotlight in this episode, and here is the question. I'll open it up to either of you. If you were to organize a themed party related to accounting standards, what theme would it be? Okay. This one didn't come naturally, and then all of a sudden an idea popped into my mind, and here's the context. I have a place up north with my husband, and we like to do jigsaw puzzles. And I was thinking about, we would invite everybody to bring their own jigsaw puzzle. Now, when you have a jigsaw puzzle and you put it together yourself, it can be done. Sometimes it takes time, but it can be done. But what if everybody bought their own jigsaw puzzle and they all fell out and we got all the puzzles mixed up? That would be kind of like 147 jurisdictions <laughs> to all have their own laws and their own practices and their own thoughts about any particular change to an accounting standard. And we get to sift through all of those puzzle pieces until we say, okay, we've got the puzzle pieces back together and now we can do the puzzles. So that's what I would do. That's poetic. I was wondering where you were going with You didn't this, think I had that... a creative side, did you? No, no. no. <laughs> I actually think standard setting does require quite a bit of creativity. Oh. So, Andreas, I don't know if you can top that one. Well, no, I, I can't. I would, I would just go broad and say 50 years of global accounting standards and still going. <laughs> That's good. Um, I know I, I know I don't normally present I'm moderating, but I just I loved this question and thank you for whoever provided it. So I'm going to just give my answer as well. Um, so one of my favorite and I took a different approach. I tried to pick out one of my favorite standards, and that is IFRS 8 on segment reporting. It's just such important information for investors. And in my former regulatory life, we spent a lot of time enforcing that and thinking about it. And I was thinking, what, what do I enjoy that's like IFRS 8? And it's food. Some of my favorite chefs will take ordinary meals and deconstruct it, like disaggregate it, and then put it together in different ways to create new flavors. Not to suggest that we want companies to aggregate their <laughs> segments in different ways and create new flavors. It's important to be uh, <laughs> to represent faithfully the underlying performance. But but just that was what I was thinking about with my party. Um, 
Well, food's good at a party. I think so. Yeah, and chips are I like your seeds better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to wrap things up now. Um, if you do have a question, and it doesn't have to be as creative as this one, it can be more technical if you wish, um, please do send that uh, to us at communications at ifrs.org. We'd love to hear from you, and we will feature that in our upcoming podcast. And thank you everyone for joining us this month's podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, share, and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. And we look forward to having you back in February. Thank you so much. Bye.